Hello, Humane Voices podcast listeners. It's good to be with you today. I'm Kelly, today's host, and I have two very special guests with us for our regular listeners. You probably know our most recent episode was about cat cafes. We're going to kind of continue that cat theme a little bit. Today, we're going to talk about the Big Cat Public Safety Act, which was a law that was signed by President Biden recently in December, right before the holiday break, I believe. It's a huge win for animals, and the two experts that I have with me today have both worked tirelessly on this legislation and on this issue for many years, and I'm very excited to talk about the Big Cat Public Safety Act with Jocelyn Zimian, who is Senior Specialist for Federal Affairs with the Humane Society Legislative Fund, and with my colleague Debbie Leahy, who works in our captive wildlife team as a senior strategist for the Humane Society of the United States. Jocelyn and Debbie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Glad yeah, it's great. So we've got, you know, as I said, some experts with us listeners. Um, I guess first, before we get into and I have lots of questions, but before we get into the questions, congratulations to you both, of course, to animals. This is a really, really big victory. Um, and let's start by maybe, Debbie, if you could just give a little overview about what this act that President Biden signed into law, what it actually does and how it protects animals. Yes, we're very excited that this bill finally passed. It's going to make a huge difference for for big cats. Uh, What the bill does, it uh, prohibits individuals from keeping big cats as pets. So anyone without a USDA license will need to register their big cats, and they won't be allowed to breed them or acquire more. But also a very important component of the bill was the prohibition public contact big cats. And when we talk about public contact, we're talking about just at um, various kind of entertainment centers, different facilities where people would touch the cats. It was often at roadside zoos, traveling zoos. Sometimes they would bring them out um, to fairs where people could pay to have their photos taken with the animals. And they were often promoted as um, opportunities to feed, pet, hold, play with. And in the case of at least one facility, even swim with tiger cubs. And Debbie, you how long, how many years have you worked on this issue? Oh boy, I've been working <laughs> on captive wildlife issues since the early nineties. Okay, so many many years. So this was a a victory long long overdue. And Jocelyn, I know you've worked on this issue for quite some time. How long have you worked on this issue? I've been working on this for over five years. That's great. And so I'm sure you probably don't have this uh, exact number, but I would guess hundreds, maybe more hours. Uh, Jocelyn, you and your colleagues with Humane Society Legislative Fund spent down at the Capitol lobbying legislators. I'm, I'm guessing just countless hours on this. Yes. I'm not sure exactly how to quantify the number of hours, but yes, this this. Uh, legislation has been a top priority of the Humane Society for for around a decade. Um, and the work that we did for it on the policy side included, like you said, direct lobbying, so contact with um with with legislators and their their staff, but also um, you know, kind of uh, strategizing with with partners about, you know, what, what kind of planning out our next steps and 
um, it's it, it is a very time intensive process. So we're we're really glad that it got over the finish line. So, and when we talk about Jocelyn Debbie, so this you know issue, it's not new by any any stretch. Uh, you know, advocates and groups, obviously, like Humane Society Legislative Fund, Humane Society of the U.S., have been working on this for years. But it seems like it's maybe one of those issues. It took the public a little while to maybe get up to speed on or to learn about why this law was needed and why kind of public contact um, is discouraged. And so, I mean, what is your sense, um, Debbie, I guess I'll, I'll ask you this kind of your sense of how, how did the public become aware of this? And I, you know, we obviously can't talk about this issue without mentioning uh, for good or for bad Tiger King, but I think that certainly raised the consciousness of others that saw that it was on Netflix uh, that saw that. So talk a little bit about that. How did the public kind of learn about this issue and become engaged? Well, Tiger King exposed the public to the issue of photo ops with tiger cubs. And I think it showed people the characters who run these operations. Um, you know, it was pretty obvious that they cared only about the money that could be made from people paying to have their pictures taken, holding and feeding tiger cubs. You know, these these operators didn't care at all about the welfare of the cubs. Yeah. And is it so is that, Debbie, is, is it about the money? I mean, is that why these facilities exist? It's all about the money. Yeah. It's it's strictly about the money. I mean, it's anywhere from $25 to $500, depending on what kind of, you know, quote unquote, VIP experience you wanted to have. Um, you could have access to these animals. They just wanted the money. And and so not only, you know, it sounds like that people became aware of this through a variety of things, such as the Tiger King. But Jocelyn, did you find when you met with legislators, were they, you know, why did it take a while for this law to pass and to be signed? I mean, what was your sense from uh, when you were lobbying on the Hill? In a general sense, it it often takes a while for a bill to get passed. And a big reason for that is it takes a while for uh, for all the members to learn about the issue. Um, and to your your previous point, um, you know, this is something that I don't think everyone was was aware of. Um, and Tiger King and um, did help shine a spotlight on that. Um, so, so one, so like I said, one one of the steps is increasing awareness and then building support and kind of passing a piece of legislation requires kind of. Um, kind of putting the puzzle pieces into the right place. And um, sometimes that takes a while. So do you think, Debbie, do you think when we were talking about kind of the public um, becoming aware of this issue, that did they believe what often some of these facilities and these kind of, you know, these folks that are in it for the money, these unscrupulous characters, they preach conservation. But is that true? These places put the con in conservation. Uh, they falsely claim that breeding tigers is helping endangered species, but the tigers at these roadside zoos were often the product of inbreeding or crossbreeding of subspecies of tigers, and in some cases, even crossbreeding tigers with lions to make hybrids like ligers. Um, and, you know, of course, these animals are never going to be released into the wild. So 
they served absolutely no conservation purpose. In addition to that, some of these operators uh, claimed that the money customers paid to interact with these big cat cubs, um, that the money would go toward, you know, uh, conservation efforts in the field. And that that is not true. And I believe that one such operator has been charged with money laundering. Debbie, am I right about that for this Correct. very reason? Yeah. So they were not only, you know, exposing people to wild animals and allowing them, encouraging them to touch and interact with the animals. They were also intentionally misleading, you know, these same people. And so they maybe take their family, they go to a facility and think, oh, we want to touch a cub. But in addition, we're helping other animals. And that's absolutely not true. Right. Another thing they would claim is that, oh, this the funds will be used to care for the animals when in reality the animals are going to be dumped once they get too big to be handled. So it's just aligned pockets, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and do you find in working on this issue in this law, I mean, was that exposing a lot of these truths that just, you know, unbeknownst to these consumers or folks that were going, they didn't know this? I mean, do you think do you think that the public education on this because of this act, but also just the work you both have done in this space, that people do now understand what these facilities are really about? I think the public has largely understood what these facilities are about. Uh, even before the law passed, it was becoming increasingly uh, difficult and controversial for these places to operate because of you know efforts of the advocacy group like the Humane Society of the United States. You know, we would pressure venues that uh, hosted these operators or brought tiger cubs to an event. Um, you know, we'd pressure law enforcement. We'd file complaints with the USDA about certain activities that were going on. We did undercover investigations. So it was uh, becoming increasingly difficult for them to carry on these activities. And we've done, haven't we, uh, HSUS has done some undercover investigations, I think maybe even with... Um, uh, Joe Exotic from Tiger King. We, we've done some of those investigations, haven't we? Oh, yeah. We've done undercover investigations of three facilities that were offering Tiger Cub photo ops. Uh, there was Joe Exotic's facility in Oklahoma. And we also did undercover investigations at Tiger Safari in Oklahoma and Natural Bridge Zoo in Virginia. And, uh, you know, all, all three investigations confirmed that as, as long as there were paying customers waiting for a chance to interact with a tiger cub, it didn't matter how exhausted the cubs were. Um, if the cubs struggled or resisted in any way, they were hit, punched, and dragged. It didn't matter how hungry they were. Uh, their feeding schedule revolved around photo ops with the public. And there's a... Another problem to consider since the start of the pandemic is that big cats can and have contracted COVID. In fact, some have died from it. Uh, in the U.S., they've confirmed COVID in 55 tigers, 54 lions, and 13 snow leopards. So, you know, that's another reason people shouldn't be having contact with So there's a public health can, concern They can as make well. them sick. Yeah, in a lot of these cases, they got COVID from infected keepers. So are the people that run these facilities, do you think they see the writings on the wall and they're, um, you know, I mean, moving to other lucrative things that maybe, um, you know, wouldn't, would also not be something we would encourage? Or yeah, what, do think, you, what do you think from their standpoint? 
I think they saw that this was eventually going to become just impossible to do. I mean, even before the federal law passed, uh, we got laws passed in three states, Nevada, Indiana, and Virginia, banning public contact with big cats, as, as well as some other species. So they saw the trend. Um, they knew that they couldn't continue on with the tiger cubs. And we've seen some of these operators turn to other species. Uh, we're very troubled by an increase in the use of uh, sloths, otters, lemurs, and kangaroos and wallabies for public contact. Um, it's it's a, a troubling trend that we're taking a closer look at, look at. How do these facilities get these cubs? I mean, how is how is that even possible? They breed them, or they get them from other breeders like Myrtle Beach Safari in South Carolina. Uh, you know, tigers breed pretty easily in captivity, so um, obtaining the animals was never an issue. It was like, what do you do with them when they're older? You know, the the surplus of big cats was a big concern. They end up being warehoused at roadside zoos. They ended up being sold into the pet trade. Uh, conservationists always feared that these animals were being slaughtered and sold. Their tiger parts were being sold on the black market. So, uh, you know, it's a big concern. And I think an important thing to realize about this, this um, what, what Debbie just said, is because the cubs can only be used for a few months, this kind of cycling, this kind of aging out of cubs was a constant process. Um, so in order to always have cubs available for public contact activities, these people needed to be constantly breeding big cats mm-hmm. to produce them. And what about, so just so our listeners understand the difference, we, I, I think at our Black Beauty Ranch, we have three tigers there. Um, and, you know, how are, for instance, tigers that are at sanctuaries, how is that connected to this? And I want to make sure people understand the difference between a sanctuary like Black Beauty Ranch visiting there versus one of these type facilities. Well, one of the um, uh, code of conduct of sanctuaries is that they don't breed, buy, or sell animals. So um, that's Black Beauty Ranch. And they're also accredited by the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries. The Rescue tigers that are living at Black Beauty Ranch, their names are India, Elsa, and Loki. Uh, And they do relate to the legislation that was passed. Uh, These were privately owned tigers by unlicensed individuals. It's possible that these tigers were cast off from the tiger cub selfie industry. Uh, in, In 2021, the tiger India was spotted walking around a residential neighborhood in Houston. And then a few months before that, Elsa was discovered outside during Houston's deadly snowstorm. And then um, they were both about nine months old when they were found. And then in 2019, there was a case where uh, somebody discovered an abandoned, a tiger in a cage in an abandoned home in Houston. So um, they took in that tiger. Her name is Loki. And then just yesterday, police found a tiger cub in a dog crate at a mobile home in Albuquerque, New Mexico. That's so, you know, I, um, an incident that was close to home. I live in Ohio and over 10 years ago in 2011, there was a facility or a a man that owned uh, a lot of animals. 
I forget how many passed away there, but uh, in Zanesville, Ohio, there was an incident. So when you when you mentioned the tiger walking through a residential Houston neighborhood, I recall being in Zanesville is not far from Columbus, Ohio, where I live. And media reports started going out that there were animals loose. Um, share a little bit about, about that, because I think that also raised some awareness on ownership of wild animals. Oh, yeah. The Zanesville, Ohio incident in 2011. Uh, 50 animals escaped from their cages when the owner, Terry Thompson, uh, opened up all their enclosures, and then he killed himself. And the sheriff's office warned residents to stay in their homes. Um, they put signs out on the interstate warning people not to get out of their vehicles. And uh, after, you know, a couple days of tracking these animals, 48 animals were subsequently shot and killed by law enforcement. And that included 18 tigers, 17 African lions, and three cougars. And there were also um, some uh, bears, primates, and wolves that he had as well. So it was, uh, you know, I mean, that got international attention and that led to Ohio, which had been uh, a big problem state prior to that with with uh, licensed and unlicensed people possessing these animals. They they passed a pretty good law after the Zanesville incident. And I think that incident uh, kind of raised awareness among the law enforcement community. And I assume, Jocelyn, when you all were working on the federal bill, uh, that there was support from law enforcement because these are, you know, safety concerns too for the public, not just the cruelty to animals, but obviously there is a, a safety component for communities. Definitely. We had a lot of endorsements from the law enforcement community, including national organizations like the National Sheriff's Association and the Fraternal Order of Police. Um, in addition to being a safety issue um, for officers who are out there in, you know, on the beat, um, it's, you know, it's, it, it creates, it, it creates a coming across animals like this and having to figure out what to do with them is, is a big burden kind of administratively as well. So they, they are very happy not to have to deal with this now. And from the consumer end of it, and just for our listeners, Debbie, what are some things that, um, folks can do just to make sure they're not only not supporting these facilities, but they're maybe, um, I, I, again, I think, you know, from Tiger King and other things and, you know, the Zanesville incident, people became really educated on this issue. And I think once they understood this was happening and this wasn't good for the animals and certainly health and safety, um, maybe wanted to be more involved. Um, how can people educate themselves more on this issue and what can they do? Well, one simple thing that people can do is if they see any photos on social media of people holding or feeding or petting wild animals, don't help spread this damaging imagery. Don't hit the like button. Don't hit the share button. Never visit these facilities. You know, don't don't patronize them. Um, what we've known for a long time, and what's been confirmed in studies, is that these interactions with wild animals uh, fuels the exotic pet trade. It acts as free advertising for the for the industry. When people, um, you know, hold a tiger cub, they think, wow, this is cool. I want my own exotic pet. Maybe they didn't go out and get a tiger, but maybe they went out and got a serval or a bobcat or some other smaller wild cat. Um, it's it's just devastating for these animals. We're seeing very troubling increases on the exotic pet industry front. And uh, it, the, the most important thing the public can do is don't spread this damaging imagery on social media. 
I think if people understand, Debbie, you said this, that if they support a facility or a business where they're interacting with wildlife that directly supports the wildlife trade, you know, they don't want to support that. And so sometimes even just a little bit of research goes a long way and ensures that they're not supporting that in the, you know, the pet trade and just, um, I know there's a great uh, documentary that folks can watch um, called The Conservation Game, which educates um, it really, I mean, it, you know, I thought I knew quite a bit about this issue and it, it opened my eyes. And that's probably another thing that listeners could do is watch that and share it with others. That's exactly right, Kelly. And it's um, a, an excellent documentary to watch, The Conservation Game. Uh, it really exposed what goes on behind the scenes with the bubble. Uh, with the big cats that were used in traveling shows and for public contact and how they, a lot of them just disappear from the records. Nobody knows what happened to them. Some of them were found living in deplorable conditions. Um, and some, you know, some of these places supply some of the celebrity exhibitors like Jack Hanna, who would bring animals into TV studios and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, it was it's a sordid industry and uh th that would be a very good documentary for folks to watch another thing that that documentary um highlights um relates to a, a, a point we talked about earlier the fact that people who profit from these animals often make claims that they are that the animals are helping with conservation um when they really aren't. And that that's, uh, there are a couple situations in that documentary that really, that, that really spotlight that. Yeah. And like I said, I, I thought I knew quite a bit about the issue, but I, I took for granted all those years I watched late night shows where they bring animals on. I didn't know the point A to, you know, Z, how they got there and just how horrific it is for the animals. Um, and it, it was certainly eye-opening in that sense. Um, so Jocelyn, Debbie, any, you know, as we're uh, closing this episode, um, I, I, again, I, I just want to thank you both for the work you did. This was this, I mean, I, it cannot be overstated what a huge win that this was for animals. Um, but any kind of final thoughts each of you have for our listeners on not only the, the Big Hat Public Safety Act, but just this issue in general, Jocelyn? Well, first, I want to thank everyone who contacted their legislators in support of this legislation, you know, uh, shared shared um, action alerts with friends and family members to get them to contact their legislators. Also, we absolutely could not have done it without the support of the public. And the fact that the legislation did pass with a high degree of support just speaks to that support. Yeah, that's that's great that, you know, you have folks like yourself and your teammates that lobby on the Hill, but behind all of these important wins are just everyday community members that see something that, um, you know, they they know is not right and they speak out about that. So I think that's important. And, and Debbie, um, you know, this was a big check off your list of things you've been working on. So, oh, yeah. you know, what's the next big thing? Um, well, our work is never done. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is uh, seeking comments 
and possibly changing regulations regarding public contact with other wild animals, and as well as requiring enrichment for uh, wild animals. Currently, they only require it for primates. And uh, we have information on our website about that issue. So we'll be we'll be working on comments on that, hoping that they strengthen some regulations because, you know, the federal law just isn't doing a job. You know, animals can be kept in some really horrific conditions, yet still be in co compliance with the Federal Animal Welfare Act. And we'd really like to see that changed. That's great. And as you say, our work's not done. Um, and, you know, there's always more to do. And listeners, you can uh, learn more about this issue and the future work in this area um, on wild animals at www.humaneandsociety.org. And Jocelyn and Debbie, thank you both so much for being with us today for your incredible work on this issue. And listeners, we hope that you will join us on Humane Voices for our next podcast. Thank you so much and be well. Mm -hmm.